Well, that gospel question, uh, raises a whole lot of questions. Whose wife will she be is the one that the Sadducees raised, but my burning question is, I would love to have heard the prayer of the seventh brother at the wedding of the sixth brother. <laughs> or the toast. How earnest it must have been. <laughs> the Sadducees were, oh, a sort of intellectual elite sect of, of uh, the Jewish tradition. And they were, um, well, they differed in this way, in this way, where, where the Pharisees and others had this gorgeous landscape of Scripture. They had the Torah. They had uh, the histories that we see in the Hebrew Scripture. They had at their fingertips, they had the, the, the prophets and the psalms and the wisdom literature and the poetry. They had what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Testament, fully as their resource, as, as which described the terrain upon which they could meet God and live their lives in holiness. The Sadducees had decided that they only had a very small piece of real estate. It was the five books of the Torah. If Moses didn't say it and Moses didn't write it, it didn't happen. It was fake news if it wasn't in the first five books of the Torah. And of course, what did Moses say, among other things, but that exactly this, that if um, a man died childless, his childless widow would be taken in and remain on that side of the family and marry the son. I mean, this was, this was pushed to its extreme because the Sadducees wanted to catch Jesus out. They wanted, they wanted to make him appear absolutely ridiculous for, um, oh, I'm sorry, what I should have told you is the Sadducees. The Sadducees do not believe in the resurrection. It was in the scripture, but you might not have heard it. The Sadducees do not believe in the resurrection. Jesus, Pharisees, others have, uh, have the larger scripture to draw from, and it points toward resurrection. But because the five books of the Torah do not mention the resurrection, there's no such thing, right? And so this is how they want to catch Jesus out. They set him up the way Moses had said, which was that you take care of your widow and your orphan in this way. It was good social order. It was a good way of going about taking care of the vulnerable. But Jesus is not caught out, is he? Instead, he flips it around. He basically says, you're not asking the right question. Because the life beyond the one we know, the life beyond this, is not dependent upon the social customs of this life. God's imagination, God's, God's plan, God's, God's capacity for, uh, for fullness of life is much larger than we can experience here in this world. So the systems we set up to create good order in the world, you know, the systems that allow us to know who marries who and under what circumstances, where the boundaries are of our lives, where, uh, 
you know, all the social customs that we, we, uh, in which we see good order are not reflective of God's good order and God's imagination, which is so much larger than what we can, what we have a capacity to perceive. So Jesus is saying is, once we have died to this life, we are children of God. We are heirs of the resurrection. It's not as you see. All women will be free. All persons will be whole. One of the things I love about this is that of the great terrain that Jesus and others are allowed to travel in which to engage scriptural terrain in order to travel and engage uh, uh, God. As we said, the Sadducees live in a very small piece of real estate, the five books of the Torah. One of the things I love that means a lot to me is that Jesus comes off of the great rolling hills of the fullness of the scripture and stands right there in the midst of that little postage stamp of real estate. And he speaks to them. Instead of saying, you've got to come out here and join us, he enters their reality and speaks to them from the midst of their reality. He answers them saying, Moses, Moses, at the burning bush, Moses, heard God say that God was the, well, that Moses uh, heard, perceived that God was the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So he entered their paradigm, their way of making sense of the world and just blew it wide open, blew it wide open, found in that evidence of the resurrection. He is not the God of the dead, but by saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, God is identifying as, as a God, as, as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as if they are still alive. He doesn't say, I was their God. I am their God. I think the reason I love that so much is that I occupy a pretty small piece myself, my own life, and the circumstances of my life. It's a comfort to me to know that God steps into the circumstances of each one of our lives. God, whose life is so much broader than anything we can experience, is so willing to step in to, to our little lives and to open them up so that we can see beyond the disappointments, the expectations of our lives and begin to experience the hope of the resurrection, not because we can see it, not because we have the imagination for it, but because we experience it bit by bit as God steps into our, the circumstances of our lives and gives us a glimpse of resurrecting energy in this lifetime. How many of us, how many of us have, are living the life we thought five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, we thought we would live. How many of us would have recognized the life we are living 
if we step back just a little ways. I know Elliot and I are celebrating 36 years this week, and when we married our plan, oh, by now you would have been retired 12 years. <laughs> and uh, we, we did not attend church, <laughs> never planned to. I mean, our lives have changed in ways we had never imagined. And they're so much better off for it. But that's too fine a point. They are so much better off. Who knew that we'd be raising a grandchild and that would be a great joy to us? Who knew that my mother would be living with us and that would be a deeply satisfying way of living? There are plenty of things we have faced and do face in this life that haven't been um, resolved as beautifully as the ones I've mentioned. And you all live with things too. Some of them have resolved in ways you never imagined and are so much better than you could have imagined. Some of the ways have not resolved, but you have a capacity somehow to endure, a capacity somehow not only to manage, but to find joy and goodness and hope in the midst of your difficulties. Those are glimpses of resurrection. God is the God of the living. Those glimpses of resurrection are enough to give us confidence to fear not death, to fear not failure, to fear not errors of judgment or action, sin. Nothing, nothing can inhibit God's imagination for us in the fullness of our own lives. And so I think that's what we're called to from this. We have glimpses of the resurrection because of the life of God in our lives. We have the assurance that we belong to God for all time, that we are heirs of resurrection and children of God. And with that assurance, we can take risks. We can become bearers of that resurrecting energy in our own time. We can draw near to those in need and share sacrificially. We can draw near to those who suffer grief and not, uh, we can draw near to them in faith. We can share the hope of the resurrection in this life anytime we reach out to others. And so we take solace that God's imagination is bigger than any dread, any worry, any concern. That God will draw all of us, each of us, in our own time, for all time. That those we've loved and lost live on. And that we will as well. Take hope, take, take hope. Amen.